All right. Hey, last week we actually started this message series on the book of Nehemiah. And uh, Nehemiah is actually a historical figure um, in the history of the people of Israel that comes to us at a time. Uh, another companion book that was a historical account of the people who begin to rebuild Jerusalem is a person named Ezra. And so Ezra and Nehemiah are often seen as companion books. Ezra was a priest who helps rebuild the temple. And uh, actually, to give a little bit of background on this book, I thought what we'd do is we'd look at this very sophisticated timeline, which was written somewhere on the internet. Uh, here it is. Uh, it's a timeline of the scriptures, and you may be familiar with the story of the Bible, or some of you may not be, but here's basically a historical account and where we find ourselves in this story of Nehemiah. So basically a creation which starts the, in the blue area right here, and it says Abraham to David. Now, Abraham was someone who was chosen by God, not because of anything special about him, but simply out of God's grace. He chooses him, and in Genesis chapter 12, uh, the phrase that's often used to describe the calling of Abraham is this, blessed to be a blessing. High five your neighbor and say, blessed to be a blessing. That's right. That was the call, and that was the call that God was choosing Abraham to be blessed to be a blessing. And a covenant was made with Abraham that God would multiply Abraham and that he would enter into a land and his people would be a great nation and that sort of thing. And this nation actually builds. You can actually see at the top there, there's Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments. There's a period of Moses who leads the people out of Egypt, out of enslavement, and, and then they wander through the wilderness and so on and so forth. And it culminates in this time of King David. David, of course, whether you're a Christian or you're not, you may have heard the story of David, who defeats Goliath. He's actually the second king of Israel after Saul. And David is given this promise that through him and his family that uh, the temple would be built. And so his son, Solomon, builds this temple. And so if you could imagine, a temple was significant in that time because the, the people of Israel would constantly talk about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The same God who chose Abraham, the same God who parted the Red Sea, the same God who led his people in the wilderness, the same God who would actually be part of uh, coming back into Jerusalem or coming into Jerusalem and then building this temple. Um, but here's the thing. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but most of the, the characters in the scripture are flawed. Some of you, maybe, like, you've been hesitant to be in church or you've been hesitant to even attend today because you're like, I'm just not like these perfect people. Well, guess what? Welcome to the club. If you look throughout the scriptures, there's stories of people with tremendous flaws, including King David. There's so much infighting and pain within their family that a couple generations later, the kingdom actually divides. There's all sorts of conflict and bloodshed that happen. And it actually leads towards, in the ancient world, around them, and now we're in this pink section in the middle, David to the exile. This is uh, the period where, gosh, the people of Israel can never get a break. They're enslaved in Egypt. Now, all of a sudden, in the ancient Near East, Assyria ascends as a world power, and they are conquered. And then, in Babylon, Babylon becomes a world power, and the people of God are exiled. The temple is destroyed. So could you imagine all the promises these people, generation and generation, they've been hearing about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've been hearing about Moses, who's part of their... They've been hearing about the promises of God, the covenant of God, that the temple will be built. And now, the temple is gone. It's destroyed. And the people are in exile. They're away from this land that they thought had been promised to them. And they're wondering, God, where are you? I mean, this is what's so fascinating, right? Most of the story of scriptures is a story of a people who are in exile or in difficulty or feeling dislocated. And so, like I said, welcome to the club. And Nehemiah, as we ex explored last week, in Nehemiah chapter 1, we see the predicament. Nehemiah is a cupbearer to the king. So it's not like he's some 
professional religious person. And one of the things that we've said as we've uh, started this sermon series, we've talked about this, this, real, this whole book is about the work of rebuilding, the work of renewal. And that's the invitation for us. What does it look like to be part of the work of renewal? Now, is that always led by some sort of professional, holy, awesome Christian person? Well, here's Nehemiah, who's not a priest, not a professional clergy person. He's a cupbearer to the king. And so Nehemiah walks into this, just like many of us who have quote-unquote secular jobs, he has this burden on his heart, and chapter one was about him mourning and fasting and praying, and look at what happens as we start chapter two. Look at this. It says, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. He's a cupbearer, remember? I had not been sad in his presence before, So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Now, notice Nehemiah's response. He's sad, and he says, I was very much afraid. Why was he very much afraid? Because in the ancient world, there were stories of how kings who were so insecure that when vassals or subjects of theirs acted out of line or did anything that was untoward or unpleasant to the king, the king would easily execute them or have them banished Uh, Whatever the king and their whims, the king's whims wanted, that's what would happen. And so for a subject like Nehemiah, the reason why he's probably never been sad before in the presence of the king is because the king probably demanded or maybe expected that people around him would be happy, happy, joy, joy. And so Nehemiah was someone who probably played that game. But on this day, it's actually incredibly bold for Nehemiah to actually wear his heart on his sleeves, and to be sad before him. And that's why he says, I was very much afraid. But look at what happens. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. I love that, buttering him up a little bit. Then he says, why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? He's grieving over this need that he had heard about in chapter 1. The king said to me, what is it you want? Oh my goodness. There's an open door here for Nehemiah to now begin to share what's really happening on his heart. Now check this out. Look at what it says. Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king. If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. Now, reading that as I was kind of Uh, studying and meditating on this earlier this week, I was like, I was so anxious and nervous for Nehemiah. I grew up in a setting which was highly authoritarian, and whenever anyone would make requests like this to anyone in authority, I'm like fearful, like what's gonna happen to Nehemiah? And I can imagine in the ancient world, even for Nehemiah, this is also what he's going through. But he makes this request, he says, let him send me to the city. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, how long will your journey take, and when will you get back? This is amazing, this is extraordinary. It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. It's almost like Nehemiah's given this open door, and he steps into it. He uses his voice to step into this moment. Now, look at this, because the next part feels incredibly audacious to me. Check this out. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah? You know, as I'm reading this, I'm like, Nehemiah, listen, don't push your luck, buddy. 
But here he is. He's like, listen, may I have this blessing from you? And, and also, may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so that he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy? It's like, Nehemiah, where did you get this chutzpah? He's got this boldness to use his voice. Now, because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. Is unbelievable. He steps in at very strong risk to himself, and he uses his voice. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king also sent army officers and cavalry with me. I mean, do you get the scene here? Nehemiah, somehow in this moment, he's able to occupy this space where he steps in to his destiny by using his voice. I know that for myself, I grew up kind of shying away from any kind of asking for things or asking for what I want or feeling almost ashamed to be able to say, may I have this? Part of that was I grew up in a family of four. So I had four brothers, uh, or three brothers rather. There were four of us, and I was the youngest. I was a twin. And my dad was this very authoritarian figure who would get into these violent kind of episodes. And so as a result, growing up in a family like this, I just learned that of all the people in our family, it was usually my voice that was the smallest. Or at least that's how I felt. You know, one of the interesting um, things is that over the past uh, few weeks, my father, he's been cleaning out some of the old photos that we have uh, in our childhood home. And he's been sending us all these photos of ourselves as kids. And so as I've been looking at these photos, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but as you look at a photo of yourself as a child, and like all this flood of memories come back to me. And here's a photo that I pulled up. Um, Yeah. Buff, good-looking twins here. (laughs) Uh, Now, my twin brother, he's actually the one kind of standing in front, and I'm behind him. And what's interesting is that one of the things that we've noticed through many years is that in a lot of the photos that I'm in with my my brothers or just my family, I'm usually in the background. I'm usually behind my twin brother because my my brother, my twin brother, uh, he's an extraordinary person and leader. And in many ways, he was someone that I admired. And even though we were twins, he was like my big brother along with my other brothers. Of course, with my strong, domineering dad, of course, so there's, there's these pictures of me. Whenever I find these pictures of me, they're usually like I'm behind him and I have my face a little bit downcast. And one of the things that I notice, even in this picture of me and my twin brother, there's, you know, it's, it's on this beach. And I, I, I could, when I saw this picture, it was like this immediate feeling of like, I remember, I remember being afraid of the waves. I remember not knowing if I could stand on my two feet and enter the water. Has it ever happened to you? You just kind of remember all these, these things about yourself, and that, that's what it's been like for me. Here's another picture that I came across. It's a picture of us in, like, upper elementary school um, into middle school. And my twin brother is here on the left, and I'm the one to the right of him, and I'm wearing my Michael Jordan T-shirt. And my memory of this uh, is it was upper elementary, middle school, and we were invited to, to run in this track relay race. And I had never 
ran on a big track, like a 400-meter track before. And so uh, when, I, when we were invited to this, we're like, okay, cool. So we came in, you know, our T-shirt and shorts. We brought one Gatorade water bottle, or not water, Gatorade bottle to share. And we're sharing this right now. And we were the only Asian kids there. And my parents didn't come because, you know, we were latchkey kids. They were busy working or whatever. I don't even know if they knew we were here. Um, but here my brothers and I were, and I remember at this track, just a torrent of people looking at us. Because uh, the other teams, they were dressed up in their track gear. And they had their, like, track cleats on this dirt track. And here we are with, like, our, our sneakers and my Michael Jordan T-shirt walking in there. And they're like, who are these kids? And I, can re- I still remember, like, the, the murmurings and the, the racial comments towards us. And when, so when I look at this picture, I'm like, oh, my goodness. Like, I remember feeling so small and insignificant, like the biggest loser, wondering, what am I doing here? Now, some of you are wondering, like, is, is every sermon like a therapy session for you, Drew? Like, I mean, is this, is this what we do here? Is this, <laughs> thank you, by the way. But I remember whether it was because of race because of my position in the family or because of just the shyness that would come over me at times. I realized for most of my childhood, like, this feeling of being downcast, of, of not feeling like I mattered, was something that I, I always struggled with. Like, I didn't really have a voice. So when I read this passage about Nehemiah, there's this this moment where he's just like, he's so audacious. He's like, King, this is what I want. This is what I need. And by the way, may I have this and may I have that? And I'm like, oh, my goodness, Nehemiah, you're pushing your luck, buddy. What are you doing? And yet there's something about how God has given him a voice and the invitation to actually use that voice. There's a movie that came out recently. It's called The Greatest Showman. And The Greatest Showman, it features Hugh Jackman, and it's the story of P.T. Barnum and uh, a circus, and the traveling circus, and there's a bunch of misfits of society who are part of this traveling show. And this movie was created, and it was supposed to highlight this idea that there's, you know, uh, many of us who feel like misfits at different times, what, it mean, what does it mean for us to actually live into feeling like we belong? And one of the anthems of this, the, the anthem song for this movie is a song called This Is Me. And as I was reading about the history of this song, uh, they actually hadn't approved this uh, movie yet. And the writers of the song, uh, Justin Paul and Ben Pasek, they, had, they really wanted this one Broadway, Broadway actor named Kiala Settle to actually sing the song. And so at a workshop not too far from here, they actually debuted this song where Kiala was going to sing it in front of everyone with this choir, and they were going to, and this was, this was the moment that after this moment, Kiala and uh, the producers of the movie decided we're going to go through with this, and it's the first time that she's stepping in, and I thought it'd be fun to actually watch this clip, so let's watch this clip. Benj and Justin have just written this new song called This Is Me. And uh, we knew that it was going to be the anthem of the film, um, but no one had heard it before. And no one had heard Kiala sing it live. Kiala, who 
I didn't even want to come out from behind the music stand. I didn't. I, I kept saying to her, just step out because this is your moment and you have to step out into the ring, metaphorically, because that's what you're doing and you've got to stand right there in front of everyone and just belt this out. And I didn't want to. In fact, I stood behind that music stand yeah. until the day of that presentation. There was a moment in the song that I actually was so scared that I had to actually grab Hugh's hand so that I had somebody to hold on to. And then we got to the end of the number and all I remember is just deafening, deafening applause. It was a sort of otherworldly experience. It was one of those moments that will stay with me the rest of my life. Unfortunately, we filmed it. I'm not a stranger to the dark. Hide away, they say, cause we don't want your broken parts. I've learned to be ashamed of all my scars. Run away, they say,
Oh, I love New York. <laughs> I am brave. I am bruised. I make no apologies. God gives each of us a voice to step into our destiny. And for Nehemiah, there's a freedom and a power and a purposefulness with which he's able to step into this moment. And the same is true for you and for me in these various different ways. Now, here's the thing. You know, the culture around us, like, here's the question, because the reality is, even if someone is not a Christian, this message of self-belief and coming into our own is a message that we hear often. And the question is, where do we find that kind of strength to do that? Um, Some might say, oh, we find it from the collective group of friends that we're part of and the supportive family. Now, while that might be part of it, it's also true That when it comes to the opinions of others and what they think of the decisions that we make and when we use our voice and when we don't, uh, you and I know that friends and family can be so capricious or the world around us or boss and employees and employers can be so capricious and shifting. It's really hard to find a rootedness in what other people think. Now, others of us might say, well, it's generated from the self-actualized self that it, it emanates from me just believing in myself. But the same is true when it comes to that. When it comes to me believing in myself, I realize that that gets so capricious as well based on my performance, based on what happens, based on my own standards of perfectionism or the whims of things that happen around me. And the question is, where does this audacity come from for Nehemiah? For someone who's able to walk into this moment and be able to say to the king at the risk of his very life, May I have this? May I have that? Where does it come from? How can he step in with his voice? Now, here's what's fascinating. is right before this moment in chapter 2, there was a prayer that Nehemiah gave. And and I'd love for us to actually see what this prayer is like. Because check it out. Check out this prayer. Look, this is how Nehemiah starts. He's fasting, he's praying, and he's mourning. And then he says, Lord, the God of heaven the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I mean, I love this. Nehemiah, he starts by basically saying, the Lord, God of heaven and earth. He's beginning to orient his life, his disposition on everything around him On God. In fact, check out the rest of his prayer, right? He says, I confess the sins we Israelites. He goes into confession. But notice the posture of this confession. Including myself and my father's family have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Now check out in the rest of his prayer how often he's addressing God. Look at this. He says, Lord, the God, uh, remember the instruction you gave, your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. 
They are your servants and your people, God, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. I mean, here's what we notice in this prayer. He he starts it not by saying, like, God, give me the strength to believe in myself and in the power you have given me as a human being. No, he doesn't say that. He says, Lord, God of heaven, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who has always proven yourself to be great and gracious to us. We are your people. You're the one who called us. You're the one who has redeemed us. Now prove to us that you are who you say you are. Now here's what's so fascinating about this. Where does, where does Nehemiah get the, the chutzpah, the, the boldness to be able to walk in with the king and be able to make these requests? It's because his groundedness, his sense of security doesn't come from himself or supportive community around him. While there may have been those things, it actually comes from a belief in who God is. That this great and gracious God is the God who is behind him and for him. And it's armed with this knowledge of this kind of God that Nehemiah is able to walk into this story with this king. Uh, There's a book by Tim Keller, and it's called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And one of the things that he writes about is he actually refers to different philosophers. And for instance, Soren Kierkegaard, Danish philosopher who wrote the book Sickness Unto Death. Uh, Look at what Keller writes about Soren Kierkegaard and his observations. It is the normal state of the human heart to try to build its identity around something besides God, whether it's our resume, our GPA, our LinkedIn profile, our Instagram followers, our career, our finances, Uh, where we are in the org chart. I can go on all day if you want me to, (laughs) right? I mean, this is what we do as human beings. We try to center our identity on all of these different things. Spiritual pride is the illusion that we are competent to run our own lives, achieve our own sense of self-worth, and find a purpose big enough to give us meaning in life without God. It searches for something that will give it a sense of worth, a sense of specialness, and a sense of purpose, and builds itself on that We build itself on the family, the relationships that we have, how our kids perform in school, uh, whatever tribe we're part of. And of course, as we are often reminded, if you try to put anything in the middle of the place that was originally made for God, it's going to be too small. I mean, isn't that true? I mean, our city is built on this enormous drive to achieve, to make ourselves something. And so this is what we do. We have all sorts of people who are somehow, due to fear, anxiety, or wanting to prove ourselves, are building these empires of wealth, of status, of influence. And what's with this insatiable desire for more? It often comes because we are trying to find our identity in something that ultimately will never satisfy us. You know what's what's wild is that even the good things, because these are good things, ambition and growing and scaling up, these are all good things. See, but when they become the ultimate thing, when they become that one thing that we think, well, all of our problems will be solved when I get married. Wow, some of you had a reaction to that. Wow, thank you. <laughs> or all of our problems will get solved when I have children. When my problems will get solved when I get out of this marriage. Whatever it might be. 
There are all sorts of ways in which we're looking for that other thing to somehow give us this sense of identity and worth. And, and we all know this, right? All those things end up being so capricious because the next thing, there's still this rumbling within my heart, this stirring of the soul that does not satisfy. I think on one end, if I gain the popularity of my friends, and yet that can be so fickle as well. And, and so what's Kierkegaard and what's Keller saying? See, the only thing that is immovable and that is reliable on who this object of our worship is, is God. And it's only when we can find in ourselves a security and a freedom in God that all of those trappings can begin to dissipate. Now, of course, not completely. We still live with anxieties and fears as we live in this world. But the invitation, like Nehemiah, is to root ourselves, to center ourselves in God, not ourselves, not in the opinions of other people. Check out this observation from C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity, Christianity, this is Keller actually talking about C.S. Lewis, makes a brilliant observation about gospel humility at the very end of his chapter on pride. If we were to meet a truly humble person, Lewis says, we would never come away from meeting them thinking they were humble. No, they would not be always telling us they were a nobody. Why? Because a person who keeps saying they are a nobody is actually a self-obsessed person. And know what I'm talking about? Who become so self-effacing that it almost becomes prideful. The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. It is thinking of myself less. Gospel humility is not needing to think about myself, not needing to connect things to myself. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself the freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. I mean, isn't that what all of us long for? To live with uh, like a kind of levity in life that we can be free from the trappings of wanting to prove ourselves to other people, of wanting to achieve with all these shadow desires that, that mark us. You know, what's interesting is that Keller observes that in traditional cultures, we are often taught to debase ourselves and to, be told, to, to tell other people, I am a nobody, I am a nobody, I am a nobody. And yet in modern cultures, we are taught to almost overinflate ourselves, to have such self-belief in us that we look down on others and we could begin to break away from the pack. But see, Christian spirituality is rooted in the sense that because of God, because when we can anchor in God and find our identity in God, we can actually be both humble. Humble how? Because we realize we're sinful and we all make mistakes. And, and it causes us to be humble, not feel like we're better or more superior than anyone. But it also invites us to be bold. Why? Because we realize that the God of heaven and earth is on our side. And although we are sinful, we are deeply loved and cherished. And as a result... Like Nehemiah, he can walk in with the king and before God be able to declare himself and use his voice. And it's not found in mustering up a self-actualized sense of self, but instead it's with this lightness and freedom that only comes from rooting ourselves. When we find our voice in the God of heaven and earth, who is both great 
and gracious to us. How many of us today, like we find ourselves overly anxious about certain things in our lives, or we find ourselves fearful about the future, about relationships, whatever it might be. Could it be that what we're trying to do is we're, we're, we're trying to build an identity in anything apart from God, build it on a relationship, build it on our performance, build it on our jobs. And meanwhile, the invitation today is, will you come and receive the gift, the blessing of self-forgetfulness, the blessing of being rooted in a God who is great and gracious to you? And if you ever doubted that, you can look to Jesus who died on a cross to demonstrate just how deeply he loves us, despite our performance, despite how we might measure up in the social status kind of gradations in New York City. What does it look like for us to be fully loved, fully accepted? There's this passage in 1 John chapter 4 where he says, perfect love casts out all fear. I mean, isn't that the longing for all of us? To find ourselves so rooted and secure that we know this belovedness and out of it, we can actually have this gospel humility where I'm neither inferior nor superior to anyone, but instead I can live with a freedom, a humility, and a boldness that only comes from anchoring myself in the God of heaven and earth.